All right, let's pray, and then we'll jump in here to our conversation in Luke this morning. So pray with me. Father, uh, we are grateful for these good gifts that you have blessed us with, these people who are able to help us see things and feel things and understand things about who you are and how you're at work in our life uh, in ways that maybe we didn't notice before, didn't see before. And so thank you for that. Now, God, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, Help it to become new and fresh to us, to speak to us wherever we might be at this morning. We bring all kinds of things into this place today, God. And so we bring those things before you. We trust that you are at work in our life. We ask for the ability to see and hear from you and then uh, the courage to act on what you're calling us to do next. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the Advent season. We're in week three of Advent. We've been in this series in the Gospel of Luke over the last couple of weeks. We've been looking at songs that Luke records in the early part of his Gospel, his telling of the Jesus story, that are about preparing the way for Jesus' arrival. The first week, we looked at Mary's song, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who sings this revolutionary, radical song as she learns the news that she will give birth to this baby who will be the king. Last week we looked at Zechariah's song, which focuses on God's graciousness and then also speaks about the birth of his son, who will be named John. John plays this really important role in preparing the way for Jesus. We're going to go deeper into John's story this morning. John, who's more often known as John the Baptist, is not usually part of the Christmas story. This is not a traditional sort of Advent story text and I don't know what you guys do for the Christmas season or the Advent season what kind of traditions you have we started a new one in our family this year we've never done this before but we have two kids ages four and two and this is kind of their first season of really like being able to anticipate Christmas and being excited about that and we've got an Advent calendar and it's just this really cheesy simple thing but man opening that window every morning is like the highlight of the day it's like as soon as they're up they're like when can't we open the window and it's like how are you going to obey today tell me about that and then we'll decide when we can open the window not really that's not really a conversation that we have but that's a highlight and it's been really fun to kind of enter into the advent season through their eyes and this sense of anticipation and there's all these kinds of things that we do to prepare ourselves and to get ready for Christmas and a lot of them really don't have a whole lot to do with Christmas, right? If we're being honest, there's this kind of list of non-traditional Christmas traditions that people in our culture have created and that we all participate in in some way. A couple of examples. These are ones that sort of stand out to me because I don't totally understand them, but one of them would be the white elephant gift exchange. All right, how many of you have participated in a white elephant gift exchange? I have a weird relationship with the white elephant gift exchange. The competitive part of me gets really into it because if you've ever played one of these or or participated in this, you know there's like a stealing aspect to the game and I want to get the best thing. And I don't know, just something in me clicks when I'm doing that. But really, when you think about white elephant gift exchange, like why do we do this? Okay, we pick junk out of our house that we don't want anymore and then we get together with our friends and we like give it to each other. Like where did that come from? Why do we do that? I don't understand that one. This one, maybe you've had to do this actually at one of these parties or just a Christmas party, but there's this phenomenon with ugly Christmas sweaters. We like get really excited about ugly sweaters and we make people wear them. And there's a part of me that goes, wow, there are some awful sweaters in the world. And that should be celebrated at some level. But what does that have to do with Christmas? (laughs) I don't know. I don't get it. 
Now, a more recent phenomenon, this one might be a little sensitive, so bear with me, but this is one that for some reason Christians get excited about. There's this new tradition, another non-Christmas Christmas tradition of complaining about Starbucks cups, right? You guys know about this one? This is one of those things where like if you get to this point in your life, it's time for new traditions, right? It's just, that's a big signal. Now again, there may be a whole bunch more, a much longer list of sort of non-traditional Christmas traditions. And some of those are really rich and helpful. Some of them are silly, but some of them are really beautiful. And I would even say that the coffee house is becoming one of those things for me where I really look forward to getting together and celebrating the Advent season in that way. Now, what does this have to do with John? Well, John, again, not a traditional Advent Christmas text. John the Baptist doesn't show up at the nativity scene. And so there's this element of what is this? What is this doing in here? How does John fit into this story? Sort of a non-traditional Christmas text that I think actually in a way is a really good gift for us. Because for a lot of us, we get into the holiday season and we kind of just, we click into this mode, right? We kind of go into a different gear and it's this holiday thing. We know what to do and we have to buy gifts and we, you know, are scheduling things with family and we just get into the zone and there's not a lot of room left for surprise. We kind of know what to expect. And I think what's great about including John in this year's Advent series is that it helps disrupt our Christmas complacency. John was all about overturning the status quo, disrupting the status quo, waking people out of their complacency. And one of the good gifts of John is that it surprises us. It reminds us that this is not just a story about shepherds and angels and frankincense and myrrh and babies and swaddling clothes. This is a big story. This is a history-altering, turning-the-world-upside-down story. And it's a surprising story. It's not what people were expecting. So let's get into this. If you still have your Bible open, look with me at Luke 3. We're going to start in verse 1. And we'll create a little bit more of the context for John the Baptist here. So Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. If you're looking for a new life verse, I would suggest Luke chapter 3, verse 1. <laughs> this is one of those passages that's really easy to just kind of blow past and tune out because it's like weird names and this list of people and what does any of this mean? And we just want to get to like what's the meat, what's the wisdom or whatever. But this is so important to understanding who John was and what he was doing. Now, one of the characteristics of Luke's gospel is that he's meticulously researched the Jesus story. He talks about this in the intro to the book. This is really his sort of purpose statement. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write, and here's the key phrase, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. An orderly account that you may have certainty about these things that I'm going to tell you about Jesus. By the way, if you're looking for a good intro to your friends, most excellent is a great way to introduce your friends. You can use it for me. The most excellent Steve. 
Now, Luke was a doctor by most accounts. He was a well-educated guy. It shows up in this attention to detail. We get a taste of that at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, this attention to the order and the details of Jesus' story. And so what Luke does here is he names, he works his way through this list of the most powerful people of that time and of that geographical location. He starts right at the very top. Tiberius Caesar, the emperor of Rome, the most powerful man in the world at that time. And with Caesars and presidents, you know, there's this sort of scale of good to bad. Tiberius was on the bad side of that scale. He was ruthless. He was oppressive. One of the ways that that manifested itself is he forced people to worship him as a god. I want you to keep that in mind as we move our way through John's story. So Tiberius is Caesar underneath him, Pontius Pilate. He'll come back later in the story. He's the Roman appointed governor over Judea. He's Caesar's representative to that area. Judea is the region that John and Jesus were born and grew up in. Under him, these puppet kings, Herod and Philip, sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great shows up earlier in the Jesus story. These guys were local figureheads. They had little real power, but they did have some power, and they used that. They used their positions to essentially pad their checking accounts. They were extortionists. And then, finally, Luke also mentions the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, the Jewish authorities on the list. They lived in a weird tension where, like the rest of the Jewish people, they resented Roman occupation. And yet, at the same time, they were able to use that and leverage that enjoyed a certain level of power and prestige among the people as they were kind of a buffer between the government and the Jewish people. Now, Luke is doing a couple of things here. One, he's creating time context. He's orienting us towards the historical context that these events are taking place. Again, part of his orderly account. But this isn't just about time, okay? Luke is very careful to name powerful men in powerful positions ruling from places of power. And if you do some digging, some research on these guys, I've mentioned a few things already, but they were not good rulers. And so it's in this context, this messed up political context, that the word of the Lord comes to who? Comes to John. This nobody who's out in the wilderness. Now the wilderness is a literal place. He's out in the desert, but it also serves as a metaphor for how far away John is from these seats of power, from power and powerful men. So again, Luke orienting us to the historical context, timing of these events, but also creates this incredible contrast, this juxtaposition between emperors and rulers and the high priests, the powers of the day, and then John, way over here in the wilderness. Where does the word of the Lord come? Not over here, but over here to John. It should tell us something about the surprising way that God works. Now, this phrase, the word of the Lord, very important phrase. This phrase would have connected John to the prophetic tradition, the Old Testament prophetic tradition look for example at the beginning of the book of jeremiah and this should sound familiar in some ways the words of jeremiah the son of hilkiah one of the priests who were in anathoth in the land of benjamin to whom the word of the lord came in the days of josiah the son of ammon king of judah 
in the 13th year of his reign. It came, and this it here refers to the word of the Lord. Also, in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Another scintillating passage of scripture right there. But again, should sound familiar. That sounds very much like what Luke is doing at the beginning here of chapter 3. He's connecting John to this prophetic tradition. Now we sometimes think of a prophet as someone who can tell the future, almost like a fortune teller. But that's only a tiny bit of the role of a biblical prophet. There was some element of telling people what was going to happen in the future, but it was much bigger than that. The role of the prophet was to speak for God, relay a message from God to his people. Sometimes prophets would speak to individuals like a king, usually someone in power, but more often they spoke to communities, to the whole community of God's people. And their message was different depending on the time and the events that were taking place. But for the most part, it went something like this. The prophetic word followed a similar pattern that went like this. Explaining, reminding people who God is, what God is like. Reminding them what it means to be in relationship to this God. Explaining how they've messed it up. These are all the ways we've gone off track. And then saying, this is what we need to do to get back in right relationship. And very critical to that is this idea of repentance. The word repent literally means to turn around. This idea we've gone way off track. We've gone in the wrong direction. We need to turn around and come back. And if we do that, this is usually the last part of the prophetic message, there is hope for the future. Now when John arrives on the scene, God has not raised up a prophet like this in almost 400 years So the word of the Lord coming to John is a big deal. John, like a true prophet, is calling the people to take action. Be baptized and repent. This baptism in particular, John says, is a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. This would have brought up a lot of things from their history. One part of that is calling people to take an action, go through a cleansing ritual, similar to what they would have done to prepare for a significant spiritual event, and in particular for the Day of Atonement. You can read about all this in Leviticus 11 through 15. Our interns have recently had to read through this, so they're experts on it. If you want to ask them for all the details, go for it. You're you're welcome, guys. They would go through these cleansing rituals to prepare for the Day of Atonement, which was the one day, the significant day in the year where the high priest would offer a sacrifice, usually a goat, that would cover all of their sins. So they had to purify themselves, go through these rituals to prepare for their sins to be covered by the sacrifice of a goat. Baptism also would have conjured up images of the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, passing through the waters, passing through the Jordan River to enter into the Promised Land. These pivotal moments in Israel's history where they had seen and experienced God's saving work. So this would have been a somewhat familiar message. There would have been echoes of their past here. John is saying, a big moment is coming. Something very, very significant is about to happen. So wake up. Pay attention. Get ready. Be prepared. John then quotes Isaiah, and this is the song part 
of our text this morning. And he connects this passage to himself, to his own experience. I am the voice in the wilderness. Connects it to his purpose. I'm here to prepare the way for the Lord. He uses a couple different pictures to talk about that preparation, some metaphors, hills being lowered, paths being made straight. And what is he preparing people for? That song ends with this promise of God's salvation. Get prepared, get ready. God's salvation is coming. Now look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I would have been like, you just did, you did. That's what I'm doing here. Calls him a brood of vipers, and then he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this whole thing with John starts out sounding good. Sounding kind of exciting. The word of the Lord sounds good. Forgiveness of sins seems like a good thing. God's salvation, mm, that's really good. We're excited about this. And then all these people start showing up to see what this is all about. And you would think that John would say something like, thank you. Thank you for coming out here to the wilderness to get baptized in this river. But no, he calls them a brood of vipers. It's kind of rude. This is a classic prophetic move. He's using classic prophetic language. This is a language of urgency, a language that does not mess around. And part of this is that this group of people has been coasting. They've settled into a place of complacency. John's saying, don't rest on your credentials. Just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you don't need to repent. Doesn't mean you don't need to get prepared for what is about to come. Salvation is coming. Justice and judgment will be administered. What side are you on? Who are you with? Are you going to be ready for this? Are you prepared? John is saying the stakes here are high. Naturally, this leads people to ask the very logical question, well then what are we supposed to do to get ready for this? Look at how John answers them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This is an interesting response, interesting interaction here. John has been kind of turning up the pressure and I don't know about you, but I sort of expect him to like really go for it here. And it almost feels like he turns the volume down a little bit. This is just sort of a real basic, simple, ethical advice. Share your stuff. Don't cheat people. Don't use your power to prey on the vulnerable. Just kind of a nice, moral, ethical teaching. Now remember, though, that this all started with Luke naming the powers of the day. And so this fruit that John is talking about is not just a spiritual thing, although it's certainly a big part of it. There is a political and economic 
aspect to this as well. There's a real-life, tangible response that's needed here. And it's no coincidence that the two sort of groups of people that are named specifically are tax collectors and soldiers. Could not be more of a part of the system than those two. It's part of what John is saying here. It's not just about doctrine and beliefs. It's about how we actually function and operate in the world, in the day-to-dayness of our lives. And here's the thing. Even if it sounds basic, even if it sounds like a simple moral teaching, this is not how our world works, right? We're not sort of naturally prone to share and treat people fairly. John's world and our world is all about power, all about acquisition, all about consumption. You've probably heard some of these kinds of stats before, but did you know the average American will spend $700 on gifts this Christmas? That doesn't include travel or decorations or food or all the other things that we spend money on during Christmas. Just on gifts, the average American will spend $700. So this non-traditional Christmas text forces us to ask a couple non-traditional Christmas questions. This Christmas, who do you need to share with? Who's being cheated that we need to stand up for? Who's vulnerable and being preyed on by the powerful and how can we help protect those people? Part of what I loved about last night the coffee house, was that we did it in partnership with 1951 Coffee, who's doing beautiful work with the refugee community here in Oakland and the East Bay. And if you want to know more about how all that works and what they do, come talk to me or talk to Doug, who's a part of all that. We'd love to share more with you about that. But it's just a small way in which we as a community can continue to stand up for the refugee community, which is vulnerable right now. Now, here's another part of this scene that is surprising to me. This really basic, simple, ethical teaching leads people to begin to think that John might actually be the Messiah. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Christ is not just Jesus' last name. Sometimes we get confused there. That's a title. That means Savior, Messiah, King. They think it might be John. I think it has something to do with that really simple teaching. There's something about this that fires their imagination. John goes on to make it clear, I am not the one. There's one greater than me coming. And when he shows up, it's going to be even more intense than me. One of the ways that this story is surprising, at least for me personally, is the quickness with which these people jump to wondering if John was the Messiah. Even though it turns out that they're wrong, there's something about that eagerness that is interesting to me. And there was something about John that, again, piqued their curiosity, forced them to ask good questions. Could we really live like this? Could this really be how life could work? Could salvation and justice and freedom really be here? Could it really be available to us right now? What stands out to me about all that is that they were questioning and they were expectant. I think this raises a good question for us. What are we expecting? What are our expectations? Our expectations of this season, this Advent season, what are our expectations of life in general? What are our expectations of God? 
Now, there's two problems that we run into with expectations. There's some of us who expect too much and some of us who expect too little. Let's talk about this a little bit more. For those of us who maybe expect too much, there's a certain naivete there, right? Here's the interesting thing. In a very counterintuitive way, having very high expectations actually reveals a lack of faith. Because what we're doing there is we've already decided this is how this has to turn out. This is what it's going to look like for things to go the way that I want them to go. And it actually doesn't leave a lot of space for God to show up in his own surprising way. So there's having too much expectation and there's expecting too little. This reveals a cynicism which really is, of course, a lack of hope. And There may be a lot of good reasons for this. You've been burned in the past or you're just afraid of opening yourself up to hope again. Afraid of the pain that it might bring. But my question to you is, where would you be there on either of those extremes? That continuum from naive to cynical. Are you lacking in faith or are you lacking in hope? What are your expectations? Here's how the text closes. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Even Luke, with all of his attention to detail, makes it clear here there's way more to John than what we know. But central to that is he preached good news. What is it that John had to say that was good news? Here we need to see that John was not just a prophet, but he was also a herald. A herald was one who would proclaim important news. They might announce something like a big military victory or the beginning of a national celebration. They also would go before a king. They would announce the king's arrival. The king is coming. Get ready. Be prepared. Here comes the king. I think this is a big reason why John is a part of the Advent story. His role, his good news is to announce the king is coming. Remember, though, this is incredibly controversial. Luke's talked about the emperor, the local governor, these other officials, the religious leadership. He didn't really leave anybody out of that list. And so saying there is another king on the way, that is very confrontational. This is very upsetting to the status quo. And of course, it gets John in trouble. And John's story, in many ways, foreshadows Jesus' story. They're both born into insignificant families. They're born very far from power. But their message confronts those in power. Their message calls people to right relationship with God and with each other. And it gets them in all kinds of trouble. John gets thrown in prison, later killed. Of course, Jesus ends up on the cross. This was the ultimate surprise. The ultimate disruption of the status quo. No one expected the Messiah to come and die. They expected power. Powerful ruler, a better Caesar. So John and Jesus, herald and king, were not what people expected. And as a result, a lot of people were disappointed. Different points in Jesus' ministry, large groups of people would bail. They got the sense, this is not going to go the way that I want it to go. My expectations are not going 
to be met. And it's actually here in this place of unmet expectations that I think John's song is really good news, especially good news for us. The king that John heralds is a king who gives up power, a king who suffers and dies. John and Jesus show us that God is a God of surprises. God doesn't work according to the same sorts of rules and expectations that we have. And of course, nothing demonstrates this with more clarity than the cross. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why is the cross folly? The cross is about death, powerlessness, weakness. The good news is that the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is the weakness of God? His love. C.S. Lewis writes famously, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. Have you pondered the vulnerability of God? Particularly in the Advent season. God making himself vulnerable, entering creation as a baby, giving up his life, dying on the cross. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is John's good news. This king is coming. Love, atonement, salvation is here. Are you ready for it? Are you able to receive it? Now back to that spectrum, naive to cynical, lack of faith to lack of hope. I want to end here and then we'll pray and take communion. For the naive, for those of us who maybe expect too much, the surprise of the gospel, the surprise of the Advent story is that Jesus' death grounds us in the costly reality of God's love. God's love is not fluffy sentimentalism. There's this gritty, bloody reality to it. But that reality, that love invites us to trust and invites us to a deeper faith, to a faith in a God who works outside of and in spite of our expectations, even when things don't go the way that we want them to go. God is still at work. Then for the cynic, for those of us who maybe have low expectations, the surprise of the gospel, the surprise of the Advent story is that Jesus' incarnation and resurrection grounds us in the real power of God's love. Again, God's love, not just some nice-sounding empty words. It is power, power that overcomes death, that brings life from death. And as a result, it invites us to hope, to see beyond our hurt and our brokenness, to allow God to put us back together, to heal us. This is the good news of John's song. The king is coming. Salvation is coming. Faith and hope and love in the person of Jesus. It is available here and now. Are you prepared? Are you ready to receive it? Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning and we confess that 
for some of us anyway, we have a sort of complacency about Christmas. We've done it before. We've heard the story before. We know all the parts of it. And we just kind of robotically make our way through the season. God, made John's story wake us up, break us out of that complacency this morning. May it call us to take action, to share and to stand up for the vulnerable, those who are being overlooked or cheated. God, then there are those of us here this morning who struggle with this idea of expectation. We've expected too much and been disappointed. We've expected too little. We lack faith. We lack hope, God. And so for those of us who are in that place today, may this story speak to us freshly. That your costly, real, powerful love is able to break through our naive perspectives, our cynical perspectives, to open us up to the reality of who Jesus is, the King who has come to bring salvation. Ready our hearts, God, to receive you during this Advent time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.